You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. Uh, so Matt Akers was so kind as to print the notes. Um, now, these notes are extremely extensive, and I took a year's worth of curriculum and shrunk it a lot. So I'm going to shrink in some more. We won't go through all these tonight because it would take us probably two and a half to three hours. So I'm going to just try to condense it further and make it more feasible for you, us to get through. I see that the Texans game is very popular this evening as well. So you guys can condemn all the Texans fans who decide to watch football instead of coming and sharing with us. Yes, being truly holy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll begin. Dear God, we love you and we thank you for this time, this opportunity. Lord God, please teach us. Teach us what you want to know or what you want us to know. Teach us what you want us to get from these things so that we can be more effective in sharing the gospel in our communities, Lord. Um, Lord, there's many false things out there and false teachers are defaming your name, Lord. And, and uh, Muhammad has brought many people away from you, Lord. Many people who are around us in our community. So give us the knowledge we need and the grace and the love we need to reach those people for Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before I start on the Muslim evangelism curriculum here, I wanted to briefly talk about our, our vision, our mission, because some of you know very well about it and some of you do not. Most of you don't know a whole lot about it, even though my picture is on the wall with my family. So, um, so I'm with a group called SEND56, and SEND stands for Sending African or Indigenous Missionaries. We believe this is the most effective method in reaching the unreached tribes of the world, and especially the unreached tribes of Africa. So we train African missionaries to be close cultural missionaries to go to unreached people groups. Um, and then 56 is for Isaiah 56, 7, which is my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Prayer is a very significant part of this work. And so we have a school called the School of Missions and Prayer where we train indigenous missionaries. And the house of prayer is a very important part of that, just getting a culture of praying quite often. Our students actually fulfill many prayer hours as well as staff uh, during the week. So uh, next slide. There are approximately 1,000 unreached people groups in Africa still today. And the majority of those are Muslim people groups. Um, hence the Muslim evangelism. How do you define reached? Uh, the same as the Joshua Project, which I think is 2% or less, um, which is not enough to make an effective gospel witness. Um, that's how we define it. So <clears throat> what we do is we train African missionaries. Um, they go through a two-year program where they learn good basic theology. They learn um, Christian living. And then the second year, they do more detailed missiology Christology and apologetics and Arabic. They learn all those things so they'd be equipped for the mission field. Then we also raise support to send them to the unreached people groups. So that's what Send 56 does. It's based out of Atlanta and we raise support for those missionaries. This is just an example of some of our missionaries. Um, this is Dennis, 
who is in Harar, Ethiopia, the fourth holiest city of Islam. And they are doing a fantastic job of sharing the gospel in that community. Um, they've had like crazy stuff happen where they're like praying one day and uh, a Muslim will just come in and say, I felt like I needed to enter this place and get saved. <laughs> and they just get saved, you know? So they're doing evangelism stuff and, and prayer is a big part of it. They also, um, Dennis here is fantastic at um, getting businessmen involved. So he's gotten Muslim businessmen to supply milk for um, street kids, street babies. And that's a way for him to share the gospel too. Isn't that so cool? In the fourth holiest city of Islam. And they've done so well that they're actually planting a new base um, on the Somali border, um, I think next year. So that's really cool. Next one. Um, these are our guys in central Uganda. There's a tribe called the Nubians, completely 100% um, Muslim. Well, as I explained, not anymore. We went on a mission trip there recently, and God did awesome stuff. We took a medical team there. Um, these is the kind of tribe that chases you with machetes when you share the gospel. They're very warlike. They don't like the gospel. Um, but since we took a medical mission, we were able to really touch them in that way. And that gave us an open door for the gospel. So um, in that Muslim tribe, 19 confessed Christ in April, and six came for baptism, and now are being discipled. So praise God. Uh, next one. Um, we also have our missionaries in South Sudan. You know, South Sudan is at war and is having a tremendous famine and real crisis in, in those ways. And so these guys have planted four churches in South Sudan and have also been able to be a part of relief efforts that have given their more inroads to the gospel there as well. Um, so that's God's work there. Um, this is just some statistics from our school. We have many graduates from our school. Um, actually, these statistics are a little bit old. It's a little bit higher than this. But basically, we've graduated a lot of people um, over the past nine years as a school. And we have about 20 full-time missionaries on the field now, indigenous missionaries. Um, we've sent six out this year. And we have mission uh, indigenous missionaries in Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, and South Sudan, and Ethiopia. So, praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. We have a car alarm? Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's like a car worth $400 according to the Blue Book value. Praise God. Somebody let us use it, and we're so thankful. Um, this is just explaining the world's wealth because we, we do raise support for missionaries overseas. And some people think that's good. Some think, no, you shouldn't do it that way. Um, but part of the reason we do is this is talking about the world's population. And Africa has 16%. And America only has 4%. Next slide. Of the world's population. But in terms of wealth, we have 39% of the world's wealth. And Africa has 2%. And Africa is like three times the size of the United States, right? So 
Um, while we believe in indigenous church involvement and we make sure we get them involved, we also do believe that it's good to have some help sending missionaries from the West. Um, and this is just talking about what we raise, um, fulfilling the Great Commission through indigenous missionaries and how we raise funds for them. So you can always talk to me about that afterwards. And that's the site information. So um, that's just a presentation on our mission. Um, do you guys have any brief questions about that before I get into the curriculum? If not, you can come ask me after. So, okay, cool. That's it for the slideshow. Thank you, Trey. Okay, so sharing the gospel with Muslims. Page one. The need for Muslim evangelism. Um, Islam is growing fast. According to Pew Research, Muslims will outnumber the um, number of professing Christians by the year 2070. Okay? In worldwide numbers. Um, the Saudi Arabian government spends in three days on Muslim evangelism what IMB, the largest Christian missions organization, spends an entire year. Okay? So Muslim evangelism has, uh, has governments backing them. Okay? Um, in East Uganda, I see a mosque going up almost monthly. I'm seeing a new mosque go up. In Tororo, which is not a very heavy Islamized town, uh, there's a just huge mosque going up uh, just recently. Um, and in the U.S., about three years ago, yeah, I've been sharing the gospel in Houston for a long time. And um, up till about three years ago, I never met a Muslim. Like ever. Now, every time I go out, I meet a Muslim. Every single time I go out to share the gospel, I meet Muslims. Um, so clearly, the, it's a very quickly growing religious um, belief, very quickly growing in worldwide numbers. So that's why it's very important to have understanding so that we can share more effectively with Muslims. Um, point two, the importance of communication. Uh, does everybody have notes? Okay, cool. The importance of communication. Uh, Islam attempts to take um, take over and redefine the entire Judeo-Christian tradition. So an example is the name Allah was used by Christians in Arabia before Muhammad and even after the time of Muhammad. They used the term Allah, similar to how we use the term God to denote deity, right? And even in the Arabic Bible, it uses the term Allah. But Muhammad takes that term and then he redefines. He says, well, Allah is not the trinity of Christians. He's not the father of the Jews. He's only a one unitarian transcendent God, right? Um, Islam is a Judeo-Christian cult, is essentially what it boils down to. That's what it is. Um, Muhammad clearly claims the God of Abraham, Moses, and David and Jesus. Uh, he says in Surah 2, Surah is chapter, and Ayah is verse in the Quran, okay? So Surah 2, Ayah 135 through 136, 
They say, become Jews or Christians if you would be guided to salvation. Say thou, nay, I would rather the religion of Abraham, the true, and he joined not gods with Allah. Say ye, we believe in Allah and the revelation given to us and to Abraham, Ismael, Isaac, and Jacob and the tribes and that given to Moses and Jesus. Uh, Muhammad also claims the Bible, which is Al-Kitabu in the Arabic, and it is in the Quran, um, saying that the Quran is confirming the former revelation of Moses, David, and Jesus. And we'll go over that in more detail in a little bit here. So when you say something, Muslims hear something different. I mean, this happens to us all the time, even in denominational differences, right? You know, you talk to somebody who has a charismatic flavor or a more reformed flavor, you're like, you say something and they hear something different. Now with Muslims, ugh, they really, when they hear Trinity, it's tritheism. When they hear Holy Spirit, it's, they think of Gabriel, actually. They think Gabriel's the Holy Spirit. Um, son of God means God procreates and has a wife. Uh, the gospel is a book given to Isa, or Jesus, which is mostly lost to us now, right? So communication is essential. And bridging the communication gap that you have with a Muslim automatically, right? Um, so we need to bridge the understanding gap by using familiar terms to them. So an example is I might say to a Muslim, I am a follower of Isa, because that's Jesus. That's how they say it in Arabic. I'm a follower of Isa. He says in the Injil, which is the Gospels, okay? Giving them familiar terms that they'll listen to. I have a list of Arabic terms here, um, just names that they use, and you can use that as a reference point to remember just how they say certain things. Like Isa is Jesus, Musa is Moses, uh, Daudi is David, Injil is Gospels, Tarat is Torah, Zabur is Psalms, and there's a few more here. You guys can read through those. So then after we use those terms, we need to define them clearly because we don't want the Muslim to think that we believe in the Quranic version of Isa or Jesus, or the Quranic version of God, okay? So we need to help them understand Allah is a trinity. Isa is more than a prophet, right? Um, point three, carnal mind. Um, a Muslim doesn't have the Holy Spirit, okay? So he doesn't have the same spiritual concepts of God. And you'll see that when you talk to them very quickly. They're extremely carnally minded. They don't understand spiritual things. Um, 1 Corinthians 2.14 talks about the carnally minded like that. There, people are like that who don't have the Holy Spirit. So don't use heavy theological terms. It's very tempting to do this. But you must have brief, effective answers for their questions. Okay? Okay. We, we get into, it's very tempting to get so deep, like, oh, it's this and this and this, and you go deeper and deeper. 
but you have to have a very brief, effective answer for a question. So like, I have an example here. Um, question, if Jesus is God, then who was running the universe when he was dead for three days? Okay, this is a common Muslim apologetic about Jesus not against the Trinity, right? So a brief, effective answer is, well, Jesus' body died, right? But not his spirit. And John 4.24 says God is spirit, right? Those who worship him worship in spirit and truth, okay? So one, a person doesn't cease to exist just because their body dies, right? That's a brief, effective answer to the question. Does that make sense? And that's something that they can chew on then. Um, point four. This is very important. The use of the Quran in Muslim evangelism. First, why should we use the Quran? Uh, Muslims believe the Bible is a corrupt book, right? It's like a Mormon coming to you and quoting verses from the Book of Mormon to win you over. It's not going to work, right? Because we know it's corrupt. So they believe the Bible's corrupt. Um, Second, it helps us to understand what they believe and how to communicate. Um, three, it can help forge bridges to the Bible. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. And it will help expose contradictions within itself and between it and the Bible. So the Quran has contradictions in itself and contradictions to the Bible, right? Another important point, the thou shalt nots of using the Quran in... Evangelism. Never affirm it to be true, please. It's very important. We don't believe in the Quran. Um, never depend on it more than the Bible. Believe it or not, this can be very tempting to do because there's a lot of useful tools in the Quran, but we still need to rely on the scriptures, the true scriptures. Three, never think that it can lead someone to salvation because it cannot. It still is a false book, even though it has some useful things in it. Um, it also has demonic origins, so expose those. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later too. Um, and never interpret the Quran falsely. This is important because Muslims do this to the Bible all the time, and it's so annoying, right? You don't want somebody grabbing your book and then misinterpreting it and like ay, ay, yelling at you, right? So we should extend the same courtesy and try to interpret the Quran correctly, what it's saying. It still has useful tools for us, even then. Um, C, ways to use the Quran in Muslim evangelism. Creating story bridges. This is huge. The Quran has Bible stories in it. Why? Because Muhammad was surrounded by Coptic Christians. Even though he was illiterate, he knew Bible stories. Now, they're a little bit adjusted and changed but there are some very similar stories. One is Mary's conception and virgin birth. Um, this is a, a very helpful tool. Luke chapter 1 verse 35 talks about that in the gospel. In the Quran, it's Surah 21, Ayah 91. Very similar accounts. They believe in the virgin birth. Um, I had it in a different spot, but I want to go ahead and take this opportunity because of time to share effective way to share the Son of God concept with Muslims. So in your notes, if you go back to the appendix, 
It's appendix, appendix C. So son of God is a very touchy subject for Muslims. Because to them, if God has a son, he also has a wife. And that's ascribing partners to Allah. So that's going to be their one of the biggest offenses of the gospel to them is the idea of son of God. And so what we need to do is first dismantle the false ideas they already have. They've been taught their whole life in the mosque that Christians believe that God has a wife because he has a son, right? So they'll argue with that. Even very secular Muslims will do this. So first we need to understand what is meant by the title son of God. Um... If the title Word of God represents God's revelation of himself in Christ, the title Son of God represents the personal nature of God. And there are several passages about that here. Um, we know it's a messianic title. And the Quran actually uses the term Isa Masih, Jesus Messiah. So they actually believe he is the Messiah according to the Quran. They just don't know what Messiah means really. But uh, Son of God is a messianic title. Um, and what we need to help them understand is it's spiritual and analogous language, right? It's symbolic language. It doesn't mean God procreates biologically, right? Um, two, to agree with this title is necessary for salvation. So you can't be ashamed of this title when you're sharing with Muslims. At some point, this has to come out. You have to share the Son of God with them. Because they have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? And I have verses here, John 3.18 and 1 John 2.23-25 about that. So in point three, it says it's a sensitive topic for Muslims. So make sure you explain it does not mean physical reproduction. And here's how. So first I use the Quran. I've used this in many debates because it's a powerful tool that imams cannot answer. In the Quran, in Surah 43, Ayah 4, it says that the Quran is the mother of books. So we read it here, and indeed it is in the mother of books with us, exalted and full of wisdom. So it's referring to the Quran. Okay? So you say, who is the husband of the Quran? Who's the husband? Who are these children? And so you say, he doesn't mean physical reproduction here, does he? he? He doesn't. He's using symbolic language when he says the Quran is the mother of books. And so if the Quran can be the mother of books and not biologically reproduce, or in, in Arabic it's commit waladi, um, then, the, then our God can have a son without physical Reproduction, right? Without sexual reproduction. So that's a good way to show them first uh, the, the symbolic language points, right? Um, <clears throat> so then you go to the virgin birth story. Because that's why we call him son of God. It says, share the story of the virgin birth from the gospel of Luke. That's point C. It says, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, 
the Son of the Most High. Right? That's Luke 1.35. So according to Luke, Jesus is called the Son of the Most High because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary. Right? The Quran has a very useful rendition of this story. In Surah 21, Ayah 91, it says, And remember her who guarded her chastity. We breathed into her of our spirit, and we made her and her son a sign for all peoples. So it confirms the virgin birth and says that Isa came back about by the spirit of Allah. And so you say, so you see, my friend, that if Jesus has no father earthly and he comes about by the spirit of Allah, then he must be the son of Allah, right? Not in a sexual sense, because God is spirit. He doesn't have a human body, right? It doesn't work that way. So that's a good way to explain to them that concept. Very important to have that understanding. So there you go. That's how you can explain the Son of God concept to a Muslim. Yes, we breathe our spirit. Um, so Allah uses the term we often. And if you use that as an argument for the Trinity, they say, well, it's just a majestic we is the form that's being used. Um, so, okay. Um, they can say that. But um, they also believe that angel Gabriel is basically like a form of the Holy Spirit. And he, there's another verse that says basically he breathed into Mary, the Spirit. And that's how Jesus came about. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so, man, why do I not have page numbers? That would have been really helpful. I, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> page, whichever page we're back to. Four, okay. So we're on ways to use the Quran in Muslim evangelism. So the second one, another similar story, is Abraham command, commanded to sacrifice his son. Genesis 22, of course, has this story. In the Quran, it's Surah 37. Almost the same story. The Quran has a very powerful tool for this as well. Um, let me go ahead and go to that one too. We're going to use another appendix here. Actually, no, let me pause. I'm going to go back to that one later. We're going to use that one later. Um, point C Adam was, has sinned and cast out of paradise. Genesis 3 and Surah 7 are this story. This is very useful because Muslims do not believe in original sin. But they have an issue when they don't believe in original sin because they believe the Garden of Eden was in heaven. And when Adam and Eve were cast out, that they were cast out of heaven, basically. Which means nobody is born in heaven, right? Everyone is affected by the sin of Adam and Eve, right? Because we're born here to an imperfect world. Um, that is Appendix, Appendix B, I think. Let's go to Appendix B and look at that one real quick. <clears throat> Original sin and salvation, Appendix B. 
So Adam was rejected from paradise because of disobedience to Allah. And we see that in the story. Because um, of time, I won't read the whole thing, but it's Surah 7, Ayah 22 through 25. And he says, um, at the very end here, he says, Get ye down with enmity between yourselves. On earth will be your dwelling place and your means of livelihood for a time. He said, Therein shall ye live and therein shall ye die. But from it ye shall be taken out at last. So all people have been affected by Adam's sin, right? Right now, all people are born into and live in a fallen world and not in Jannah, which is paradise. Um, because of sin, people die, right? Sin brought death into the world, according to the Bible. You can ask the Muslim, where are you living right now? Are you in Jannah or are you in a fallen world? If they affirm that they are not in paradise but on earth, we can point out that this is evidence we are suffering from the consequences of Adam's sin. Okay? So it's hard to convince a Muslim of having sin. They have a very self-righteous um, approach to life and God's justice. Okay? Very much like the Pharisees. Muslims are almost identical, actually, to the Pharisaical mindset. Um, and so when you're trying to convince them of sin— you can use this understanding of original sin. Hey, you know the story of Adam and the fall. Tell me about it. Oh, yeah. So Adam fell. Now, do you believe you have sin because of Adam? No, no. Um, well, where are you born? Where do you live? You're born on earth, an earth that has death and suffering, right? You're not born in Jannah, are you? In heaven. Helping him understand everyone has been affected by Adam's sin. Um, we know that from Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And according to the Quran, point A, if Allah were to judge the earth right now, no one would survive. That's Allah's justice. Surah 16, Ayah 61. If Allah were to punish men for their wrongdoing, he would not leave on the earth a single living creature. Right? That's God's justice against sin. Then we have another similarity in the Quran and the Bible in that Jesus, it says that Jesus came as a new man, as the second Adam, to redeem us from the curse of Adam. So we have Romans 5, 17 through 19, 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 47. Here's what the Quran says in it, about it. It says, Indeed, the example of Jesus to Allah is like that of Adam. He created him from dust, then he said to him, Be, and he was. So the equation is Jesus is like the second Adam, right? The new man without sin, but where the second Adam failed, Jesus was able to live a truly righteous life without sin and be the sacrifice for sin. So this is what the virgin birth was about. So you can ask the person you're talking to um, if they know why God sent Isa to be conceived by a virgin without human father. It's to be without sin, right? Unlike we have the, the original sin. Um, he was born without sin, a new man in the likeness of Adam. Um, also, I don't have it on these notes, but the Quran says that Jesus is pure. And the Hadith is like Muslim history. 
um, that supports the stories of the Quran. It's like the history of the prophet. And in the, in the Hadith, it actually says that every child has been touched by Satan except Mary and her son, Jesus. So it actually says Jesus is without sin. Muhammad isn't, but Jesus is. Isn't that cool? I love this. <laughs> okay, so we can go back to page four again. Um, I will take questions at the end. I, I kind of want to go through, because a lot of your questions will probably be answered as we go along. And then at the end, if you still have questions, please ask them. How am I doing on time? What time we got right now? 622, okay. Um, so under ways to use the Quran in Muslim evangelism, two, you show how the Quran contradicts the Bible. The fatherhood of God in the Bible versus the Quran. So when we're doing apologetics, we're trying to disprove the Quran, then there are powerful tools to do this, right? So now we're going to go to Appendix A. Maybe we should just camp in the appendix for a while. Appendix of A, the fatherhood of God is a polemic. Apologetics is defense of the fake faith. Not the fake, the faith. <laughs> and polemics is like an offensive, right? So the Quran says it came as a confirmation of the previous revelation. There's several verses about this, many. I have one listed here, Surah 3, Ayah 3. He has sent down upon you, O Muhammad, the book in truth, confirming what was before it. And he revealed the Torah and the gospel. Okay? The next verse says, which is a guidance to all mankind. Okay? So the previous books speak of God as a father. The Torah says it in Deuteronomy 32.6. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? In the Zabur or the Psalms, it says, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 68, 5. In the Injil or the gospel, it says, Jesus says, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the Quran does not confirm this revelation, but actually denies it. Surah 5, 18, it says, but Jews and Christians say, we are children of Allah and his beloved. Say then, why does he punish you for your sins? Rather, you are human beings from among those he has created. So that's one, and there's also Surah 19 here as well. So because the Quran contradicts the previous scripture, it is it's false, right? It's not doing what it says it does. It says it comes to confirm, and yet it denies what the previous scripture says. Um, Jesus came. Uh, here's a good question to ask them, especially if you're having, you're having lunch with a Muslim, you're talking to him, and you say, you know, um, here's a, a verse I've been thinking about, and you read the Lord's Prayer, and you say, when you pray, do you say, our Father in heaven, as Isa commands in the Injil? Why don't you do that? It's a good way to make them start thinking about it, right? 
Um, Jesus came to reveal God as our Abba, our Father. Um, and it's only through Jesus we can know God personally as our Abba. And there, John 14, John 17, verses about that. So that's how we can use the fatherhood of God as a polemic to help Muslims understand. So back to page four on Roman numeral five, identifying Muslim types. This is very important. So just like there are different types of Christians and different maturity levels, right? Um, there are also different types of Muslims. You need to learn how to identify these types of Muslims very quickly in a conversation, okay? So type number one is secular Muslims. Um, these Muslims know almost nothing about the Quran or their own faith, essentially. You can quickly identify them by how little they know and how worldly they often live or seem to speak, right? Um, it is best to share a simple gospel witness with them using the Quran very little, if at all. Um, <clears throat> Often you will still have to answer some questions like uh, Jesus is not the son of God because God does not reproduce. Because once again, they've been taught that their whole life, even though they're very secular. Two, there's moderate Muslims. Um, these Muslims know some about the Quran and can debate with you some. Often these types will have a reasonable conversation with you. So share the gospel with them many times, but accept sal expect salvation to take time in prayer. I've had this with a friend of mine in Africa for two years now. His name's Ibra. And I pray to God so much for this man because he's such a good friend of mine, and I love him. And uh, he's just becoming more devout Muslim, even though I gave him a Bible, and he reads it. He reads it, and he seems to want to know truth, but then he... You know, and so I keep sharing with him, and I keep praying for him. He's an example of a moderate Muslim. Uh, fundamentalist Muslims. These are the guys that are asking you questions, not so you can answer, but just to argue with you. Uh, with these ones, you have to be firm and not back down from the basic truths of the gospel. I generally don't use a lot of questions for these guys, but take a more preaching approach with them. I also use the Quran to show them their own hypocrisy. So I do want to encourage you, don't back down from these fundamentalist guys. If someone wants to really argue with you, I don't think you should just back down from them. Paul had many um, debates with people, right? And so I think it can still be a valuable thing. You don't want to be arguing for arguing's sake. But it's good to stand up for the gospel even against these guys. So if you identify very quickly that they're asking you questions and not really letting you answer and things like that, then they're probably a fundamentalist and you need to just share the straightforward gospel and not back down. <clears throat> Point six, stay centered on Christ. Islam's central objection is the person and work of Christ. Um, a lot of Muslims will want to distract you with very unimportant issues. Okay? Um, issues like eating pork or who's the chosen son, Ishmael or Isaac. Um, don't get distracted by those things. Um, that's not the main topic. It's not important. Stay centered on Christ and, and preaching him and don't get sidetracked. <clears throat> then uh, point 
7, friendship or debate. Friendship is a wonderful part of your witness, but it is not a prerequisite to sharing the gospel. I cannot emphasize this enough in a Western mindset where it seems that the culture has won us to the idea that the highest ideal in everything, including evangelism, is not offending someone. The gospel is offensive. It's offensive. Our goal is not to be offensive, but the gospel by nature is offensive because it is aroma of death for those who are perishing. And we need to be ready to offend some people. That's not our goal. We want to come in in a relevant way, and that's why I'm teaching you how to, to share in their terms and those things. But be ready because you will offend some people. Paul did not have a negative view of debate or persuasion at all. And I have that in Acts 17 and 18. Um, all this to say, I'm not against friendship evangelism, but I'm against friendship without the evangelism, which happens a lot. My basis for my friendships, my foundation needs to be the gospel. Because if it's not, then I'm wasting my time and theirs. Amen? <clears throat> okay. What time do we have now? 6.30. Okay. Let me... S What's that? I have till midnight? <laughs> you don't want to say that to me, bro. I'll take it. <laughs> okay, so we're moving on to the Bible and the Quran. Um, so now we're going to go into more details about each of these things. Uh, the Bible is ground zero for Muslim evangelism. Christians understand Jesus as the Bible says, while Muslims believe in Jesus as the Quran says. This is why most disagreements between Christians and Muslims ends up discussing the meaning of biblical text. So here are three Muslim claims. All Muslims believe these claims about the Bible, essentially. One, it has been corrupted by Jews and Christians. Okay? Two, the scriptures talked about in the Quran are lost and not in the Bible we have today. Three, Muhammad is prophesied in the Bible. So they believe all these three things. When defending the Bible, it is useful to start with the Quran for the reason we said Muslims don't accept the Bible. Um, and we have to show them, point two, by attacking the Bible, Muslims are actually discrediting their own book, the Quran. So point two, Muslims who teach against the Bible are contradicting the Quran. Um, the argument is the Bible existed in its current form during the time of Muhammad. The Quran says the Bible is Allah's word and that it was sent down. And uh, point three, the Quran contradicts the Bible, therefore it is false and not the word of God. So we'll start on the Bible existed in its current form during the time of Muhammad. So our Bible is based on ancient copyist manuscripts that predate Muhammad. The New Testament is the most well-attested ancient document in the world by a long shot. I think it's like 6,000 manuscripts attest to the New Testament, whereas the next greatest document is like eight manuscripts. So we have great proof for the New Testament being authentically what it is or what it was 2,000 years ago. Um, Christians in Arabia 
were using a Syriac Bible before and after the time of Muhammad. Ibn Ishaq was Muhammad's earliest biographer, and he's well accepted by Muslims as the biographer of Muhammad's life. And he says that John wrote the gospel and then quotes the Syriac text of the gospel of John. John 15, 23, he says, It is extracted from what John the Apostle set down for them when he wrote the gospel for them from the testament of Jesus. They hated me without a cause, but when the Comforter has come, etc. Many Muslims say, where is the gospel of Jesus? Their own people attest that the companions of Jesus took down the gospels, the Injil. Okay? Um... Points B, the Quran confirms that Jews and Christians had the Bible at the time of Muhammad. They are called the people of the book, or Al-Kitabu. So the Quran instructs Muslims to believe the Bible, not accuse Christians of corrupting it. That's Surah 29, Ayah 46. It says, and do not argue with the people of the scripture, or of the book. Do not argue with Christians and Jews. And then it says, and say, we believe in that which has been revealed to us and revealed to you. So the people of Muhammad's day had the authentic Injil, authentic Torah, authentic Zabur or Psalms. Muhammad is also told to consult the people of the book. That's Surah 10, Ayah 94. So if you are in doubt, O Muhammad, about that which we have revealed to you, then ask those who have been reading the book before you. That's Christians and Jews that he's talking about. And, and Muslim scholars do not deny that he's talking about Christians and Jews. It's well accepted. That's what he's speaking about. So point four, the Quran says the Bible is Allah's word and was sent down, which is tanzil. The Quran commands Muslims to believe all scripture given to Christians and Jews. Surah 3, Ayah 3 and 4, he has sent down upon you, O Muhammad, the book in truth, confirming what was before it. And he revealed the Torah and the gospel before as a guidance to mankind. So much does the Quran invest in its affirmation of the Bible that it says Christians and Jews must use it to judge. Okay? So that's um, Surah 5, Ayah 68. Say, O people of the book, ye have no ground to stand upon unless ye stand fast by the law, the gospel, and all the revelation that has come to you from your Lord. And there are many more verses. This is a condensed version because of time. But there are many verses that support this. According to the Quran, the word of Allah cannot be changed by man. Surah 6, Ayah 115, And the word of your Lord has been fulfilled in truth and in justice. None can alter his words. And he is hearing the knowing. Somebody tell me what that means about their accusation that Christians and Jews have corrupted the Bible. It means their book is false. Because their book says that the word of Allah cannot be changed. And the Bible is the word of Allah. Right? Okay. So we're getting this. The Word of God cannot be changed. The Bible is the Word of God. So some ways the Quran contradicts the Bible. Uh, we talked about the fatherhood of God. 
Another concept, point B, is that the Quran teaches that all prophets spoke revelation from Satan. Yes, I kid you not. It says this. Um, there's a hadith, which is part of the history, about this specifically. So I don't have that listed, but I have the Quranic verse. And it says, And we did not send before you any messenger or prophet, except that when he spoke or recited, Satan threw into it some misunderstanding. But Allah, but Allah abolished that which Satan throws in. Then Allah makes precise his verses. What? Now that's a clear contradiction of what the Bible reveals in the Torah, or the Torah, right? In the Torah, in Deuteronomy 18.20, it says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Right? So this is a, a clear contradiction of the Bible. So how do Muslim gener Muslims generally answer these things? Well, <clears throat> uh, point A, they say most Muslims basically claim that the Bible has changed. Um, so what we can tell them first is there is no verse in the Quran that says Christians corrupted or changed the Injil. Okay? Not one. There are some verses that they can kind of twist to say that Jews corrupted the Torah, maybe. So that's how they try to justify the Torah. But there's no verse in the Quran that says that Christians changed the Gospels. Not one. Um, and as we said before, Muslims con are contradicting the Quran, which says the word of Allah cannot be changed. Um, three, the position makes Muslims judges of God's word. This is very important. The Quran rebukes Jews for doing this with the Torah. Okay? So in Surah 2, Ayah 85, it says, Do you believe in part of the scripture and disbelieve in part? They're cherry-picking what they want, aren't they? And it, they do the same thing with the prophecies about Muhammad. I didn't have enough time to go over the verses that they say are prophecies about Muhammad. But basically, they pick out little verses and say, This is Muhammad. When the verse right next to it says it's the Holy Spirit, they say, Well, that's a corrupted part. But they're doing the same thing that they accuse Jews of doing to the scriptures, right? So helping them see this and understand it is very important. Point seven, the Bible is the word of God. We know this from the Bible. Um, I want to make sure we, we understand biblical foundations for these things too, not just what the Quran says. Point A, Jesus said it is. Um, so I have several verses listed. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away or be corrupted, right? Um, the Bible says it is the word of God. First, God speaks directly in many passages. Um, Exodus 34, 27, then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Um, the scriptures are called the word of God in the scriptures, Romans 3.2 and 1 Thessalonians 2.13. So, um, for the sake of time, what I have here is apologetics. And what I usually do is put you guys in groups um, before you look at the answers and see if you can come up with answers to these apologetic questions. Um, but it would really take us three hours to get through this whole curriculum if I did that tonight. 
So I want you guys to take time, your own time, and look at these apologetic notes. What these are are basically common questions that Muslims will either throw at you or will ask to you, and these are good answers to give them, um, good apologetics, okay? Concerning the Bible and the Quran in this chapter. Make sense? So that means we can skip a few pages and go to number three. Jesus died for sin. Um, you, do you guys want to take a quick break? I know we're, it's, it's, it's going to take a while, so do you want to take a break or do you want to just keep going? Vote. We're good. Nobody's sleeping. People are still retaining things. Oh. Well, that's unacceptable. Wake her up. Come on. <laughs> Jesus died for sins. Muslims believe that Jesus did not die on the cross because of one verse in the Quran. So we're going to talk about that. They believe it wasn't him. So we want to first understand a history that helps support us. Islam is very ahistorical. It's not historical. And they believe things that are just not even historically, feasibly accurate, according to all sources. So not only do the eyewitnesses of the Bible testify of this in all the Gospels, that Jesus died, but non-Christian historians also testify to this, right? You have Tacitus, a Roman historian from AD 55. You have Josephus, a Jewish historian um, from AD 37. You have Suetonius. Pliny the Younger, and pretty much all secular modern historians agree there's a guy named Jesus and he died on a cross. Okay? So this is evidence for us that Jesus died. Muhammad, who was separated from the life of Jesus by 600 years and 1,400 miles, is not a legitimate source on the life of Jesus. But they believe him. They believe Jesus did not really die on the cross. Maybe I can, well, I'll, I'll read this verse and it'll explain what their belief is to you, okay? Um, the Quran is very unclear about Jesus' death. What it says in Surah 4, Ayah 157 is, And for their saying, indeed, we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. And they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but another was made to resemble him to them. And indeed... Those who defer over it are in doubt about it. They have no knowledge of it except the following of assumption or conjecture. And they did not kill him, nor for certain. That's Surah 4, I 157. So um, the Jews are the ones who are supposedly killing Jesus in this passage. But it's unclear about which Jews. Because it says... Indeed, we have killed the Messiah, Jesus. What Jews who believed he was the Messiah would kill him? No Jews who believed he was the Messiah would kill him, right? That makes no sense. Um, and then, it's not, it doesn't state that the Romans killed him. You can tell a Muslim that, yes, in a certain sense, Jews did, but the Romans are actually the ones who physically killed Jesus, right? Not the Jews. So where is the verse that tells you that the Romans... Uh, didn't kill Jesus. Maybe this is some other time. The Jews tried to kill Jesus many times in the Gospels, right? 
Um, So the second thing, point B, Muslim scholars disagree on what happened. Okay, so Muslim scholars are all over the board on this. Some of them believe the swoon theory, that Jesus did go to the cross, but then fainted, right? Didn't actually die. Um, this, if you've ever watched like uh, Lee Strobel or, um, it's another famous apologist, I forget his name. Um, but it's very clear scientifically Jesus died on the cross. It's very hard to argue that he didn't actually die. Um, most Muslims believe the substitution theory. They believe that Allah basically changed somebody else's face to look like Jesus. And they debate on who it was. Some people say it was Judas Iscariot. Some people, some Muslims say it was uh, Simon the Cyrene. They're basically just guessing, right? They're doing guesswork. And the problem you can present to your Muslim friend with this idea is this. If Allah actually did that and he put somebody's face, uh, Jesus' face on somebody else, then he's deceived billions of Christians. And Allah is a great deceiver. You see the moral problem with that? Why would Allah, you can ask them, why would Allah deceive so many people? So, um, what we can see from this verse really is Muslims are in conjecture about an unclear verse. They, this verse claims that Christians and Jews are in conjecture. They, they're guessing and all those things. We know Jesus died on the cross. Um, they're in conjecture and assumption. And actually in Surah 3, Ayah 7, I have it under point C, it actually says that there are unclear verses in the Quran. There are clear and unclear verses, some which only Allah knows the meaning. And you can use that to show a Muslim, hey, this verse is unclear. Jesus really did die on the cross. <clears throat> um, the Quran also, in another place, suggests that Jesus really did die. It's Surah 19, Ayah 33, And peace is on me, Jesus, the day I was born, and the day I will die, and the day I am raised alive. The next verse says, thus was Jesus, or thus was Isa. So that's, that sounds right. So here's what Muslims say about this verse. They have to account for this verse because they don't believe Jesus died. So here's what they say. Muslims teach that he was raised to heaven and will come back, judge the earth, and then die. They basically say he's going to have a family after he judges the earth, and then he's going to die, have a regular and die, and so forth. Um, there's a few problems with this. Um, some are very complex, so I don't have time to go into them. But one really good argument is a few verses before, in Surah 1915, it says the same thing about John the Baptist, who they call Yahya. Okay? Um, it has the same progression. This was John the Baptist. And they don't believe John the Baptist was raised to life before he died. Okay? So you can use that to say, hey, John the Baptist, he, he's in the Quran right before. And it says that he did the same thing. So why not Jesus? Why would it say that out of order? 
like that? Why would it say, thus was Jesus, if he hasn't died yet? Right? Okay, explaining atonement. Oh, this is such an important part. Is anybody not in here or missing anything? Because this is like huge in sharing the gospel with Muslims. It's one of my primary ways to speak to them about the gospel, whether I'm on the street or I'm with somebody that I've been a friend with for a while, right? So explaining atonement. We're going to start in Appendix D to show them their sin. Anybody use Way of the Master ever? Good. I love Ray Comfort. He's, he's cool. <laughs> so this is very similar to that. It, it has some of the same concepts, okay? So first, you guys in Appendix D? Appendix D, the law and the just judge. It's the very last page. So the question I will ask a Muslim is that I'll say, if you died today, would you go to Jannah? which is paradise, or Jahannam, hell. What do you think would happen to you? And you can tell them, you know, according to the Quran and Hadith, Muhammad did not know. Now, you can reserve this one. You don't always have to bring this out. Usually I let them speak first um, because they can get very touchy about Muhammad. Um, they kind of revere him more than Allah a lot of times. <laughs> So you don't have to bring out this point until later, but you can bring it out initially. Um, Muhammad didn't know. So it's Surah 46, Ayah 9. I am not an innovation among the messengers, and I know not what shall be done with me or with you. I only follow what is revealed to me. I am only a clear warner. And then the next thing is the Hadith. That, that's the story behind this passage. But it's clear that he's saying, I don't know if I'm going to heaven. And I don't know if you're going to heaven. Right? That's huge right there. Your leader, the man you're following, doesn't know? So how can you know if you'll go to heaven? So I bring the Ten Commandments, you know, Exodus 20. Um... First, I have to present God as perfectly just, right? And he will not tolerate even the smallest evil. That's in the Bible and the Quran. Um, in Proverbs 11, verse 21, Quran 99, uh, verse 7 through 8, and 1661. God does not tolerate any evil because he's good and he's just. So his law is in the Torah. And then I go through the Ten Commandments of them. It says, don't lie. Have you ever lied? Now, a lot of Muslims will try to say they've never lied or never looked with lust or never, you know? They'll actually do that sometimes. I, I, maybe Western Muslims are more quick to admit their fault, I think. But So the guys you run into here may be more likely to go ahead and admit they've lied. Okay, so you've, you've lied. That means you're a liar before a holy God. Okay? So, if you have broken any of these laws, even once, by definition, you're a sinner. And sinners deserve punishment in eternal hell. That's in the Bible and the Quran again. Hell's eternal in the Quran also, and it's for sinners. <clears throat> so now we have to establish God's justice more strongly, right? Because what they're going to say 
is Allah's merciful. Right? And if I do, the Quran says there's scales. So if I do more good things than bad things, then maybe I'll get into heaven. I'm like, okay. If you did good your whole life, and one day you killed someone in this town, and you went before the judge, if he's a good judge and he's not corrupt, you can tell him, oh, I did all these good things. He's going to still say, but you still broke the law. You killed someone's son, someone's husband. They deserve justice. Right? So then they come and say, well, I repent, though. I repent. I say, I'm sorry. I'm like, okay. So let's say you go to that same judge and you say, I'm sorry, judge. I'm so sorry. If he's a good judge, he's still going to say, but you broke the law. And you have to pay the penalty for that. Well, God's different than man. I'm like, yeah, God is more just than any man. So how much more is he going to punish for breaking his law? Right? <clears throat> so there's a good backup in the Torah. It confirms this in Leviticus 5, 17 through 19. A lot of times they'll say, well, what if I sinned accidentally? In Leviticus 5, it actually says, even when you sin accidentally, your sin is on you. You still have guilt, and you need a guilt offering, which is a lamb, right? Um, I'm not sure exactly where it is, but it does condone doing those kinds of things in circumstances to advance Islamic religion or anything like that. So yeah, they may try to use that, but at some point you're going to stick them if they're at all honest that they're sinners. And they will admit that at some point. Um, even though they'll try to use some of those things to try to justify themselves. Okay, so now we're going to go back to where we were um, on explaining atonement. So now we've established sin in their mind. You've got sin, you've got the filth, and you can't get rid of it by good deeds, and you can't get rid of it by saying you're sorry. So now we go to the story that's similar. There is not one Muslim I've ever met, no matter how secular, that doesn't know the story of Abraham and his son. Now, you don't have to say Isaac because that might get you an Isaac-Ishmael debate. The Quran doesn't specify which son it was. Um, so don't get in that. I just say Abraham and his son. So I say, hey, you know the story of Abraham and his son? Oh, yeah, I know that story. I know it. I'm like, okay, so yeah, the story where he takes his son because um, Allah asks him to sacrifice his son to him, right? So what happens? And they'll give you an account of the story and it's very similar. There are a few differences to the Bible. But then there's something very interesting. So you say, but, but what does God give Abraham? He gives him a sheep to sacrifice. Really? Why? Why does he give him an innocent lamb that he has to kill? If it was only a test, 
he would have said, well done, Abraham, you passed the test, good job. You can go. No. And here's what the Quran says specifically about this. It's very helpful. Surah 37, Ayah 107. And we ransomed the son of Abraham with a momentous sacrifice. That word ransom. I say to my Muslim friend, you know, the, ransom, the word ransom means payment. It means the sheep dies so that the son can go free, right? The sheep dies instead of the son. The prophet Yahya, if we fast forward now, we go to the Injil, and the prophet Yahya, or John the Baptist, says this in John 1.29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see where I'm going with this? And I say to them, John the Baptist, Yahya, is saying, Isa is like the sheep that took the place of the son. But he didn't just die for one son. He's dying for the sins of the whole world. Right? Amen? It excites me. I love it. There are other Old Testament examples you can use, of course, of sacrifice. The Passover is a perfect example. Um, some Muslims know the Passover story. Um, it's not as commonly known as the story of Abraham and his son. But you know the Passover is another symbolism of Jesus being the sacrificial lamb. Um, Isaiah 53, of course, is a, a prophecy about Jesus being the lamb, right? So you can always use those things when you're going in depth with a Muslim friend, right? Um, but that right there is the best way I have found to basically explain and show them atonement. Because they don't have a concept for atonement, right? But we're giving them the truth and that concept of atonement, and we're using a story that they all know. That's in the Bible. Amen? <clears throat> so once again, we come to our apologetics section. Um, Muslims have a lot of arguments against atonement and against um, the actual death of Jesus. They try to use the Gospels. So I encourage you to look through those and see what some of the answers are that will help you when they bring those things up. <clears throat> Home stretch, last chapter. Session four. <clears throat> More than a prophet. Muslims often claim that Jesus is not more than a human prophet. Based on Surah 4, Ayah 171. We're going to read that in a little bit here. The Quran and Hadith have many helpful tools to actually disprove this idea, okay? But first, I do want to help people understand, don't tell a Muslim Jesus is not a prophet, because he is, right? Is Jesus a prophet? Yes, he is. Moses prophesied about him being a prophet. He is a prophet, but he's not only a prophet. He's more than that. So first we can show them Jesus is the greatest prophet according to the Quran. Surah 2, Ayah 253. 
Those are the messengers. Among them are those whom God spoke. And some he raised up in ranks. And we gave Jesus, son of Mary, clear proofs and strengthened him with the Holy Spirit. Doesn't claim this about Muhammad or Moses or um, David or Abraham or any of them. Saying it about Jesus. It distinguishes him among the prophets. B, Jesus was sent to all mankind, not just Israel. Surah 19, Ayah 21. Now, Muslims will try to say that Jesus is only to Israel. I think I have something about this in the apologetic session. But um, they'll try to say that and use some Bible verses about that. Okay? But the Quran says he's not just to Israel. Okay? Surah 19.21, And it will be that we may make of him, Jesus, a revelation for mankind. For mankind. And a mercy from us, and it is a thing ordained. Point C, the Injil or gospel is given through Isa is for all mankind. So the gospel's in the Bible. It's for everybody. Not just Israel. Um, <clears throat> that's... He revealed the Torah and the gospel aforetime for a guidance to mankind. Surah 3, Ayah 3 and 4. D, the Quran also says that Isa is a sign for the final hour. Okay? And Jesus shall be a sign for the coming of the hour of judgment. They believe Jesus come back, comes back and judge. Judges, right? Who, what prophet does that? Muhammad doesn't. You can ask them. Muhammad doesn't come back and judge, nor does Adam or Abraham or Moses or any of the other prophets. Jesus comes back and judges, right? That distinguishes him. Uh, e, Jesus is sinless. I mentioned this before. I heard Allah's messenger saying, there is none born among the offspring of Adam, but Satan touches it except Mary and her child. Now, Muslims generally believe that all prophets were sinless. But they have no proof for this. And actually, um, Muhammad asks for forgiveness in the Quran. And this clearly says, this hadith says, that all people have sin except Jesus. And then Mary. They have a veneration of Mary. Some, the Christians in that time, had that as well. Um, Point F, the Spirit of Allah, or Ru Allah. Surah 21, Ayah 91, Therefore we breathed into her something of our spirit and made her and her son a token for all peoples. So um, also in Surah 4, Ayah 171, it says Isa is the Spirit of Allah. Okay? In G, point G, the Word of Allah. Kalimatu Allah. O Mary, Allah gives you good tidings of a word from him whose name will be the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, distinguished in this world and the hereafter among those brought near to Allah. That's Surah 3, Ayah 45. He is the word. This is backed up by Surah 4, Ayah 171. The Messiah, which is a term synonymous with son of God, remember, Jesus, the son of Mary, was but a messenger of Allah 
and his word, which he directed Mary, and his very spirit is what the next part says. So that verse kind of contradicts in and of itself, right? Because it says Jesus is the Messiah, which is more than only a messenger. Then it says he's only a messenger. Then it says that he's also the word of Allah and the spirit of Allah. So the verse is, is contradicting itself because it's clearly showing he's more than only a messenger. This title, Word of Allah, or Kalimatu Allah, um, of course comes from the Injil. The Injil tells us what it actually means. So this is a good way for you to share the Word of Allah concept. A lot of times Muslims are resistant to the Son of God thing. And they just, as soon as you say Son of God, their ears are off. They don't want to hear it. But if you go from the approach of the Word of Allah, you show them this verse, it says, He says the Word of Allah, then you say, well, what does that mean? Well, we find what it means from the Injil, the Gospels. It's right here in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Revelation 19.13 is another really good verse, right? And the name by which Jesus is called is the Word of God. He's called the Word of God. They actually have a concept for the eternal word of God. This is getting a little more complex in argument, but uh, point two here says the eternal Quran. Muslims believe that the Quran is eternal. They actually believe it's eternally inscribed on tablets in heaven, okay? Eternally. If they accuse Christians of shirk, which is ascribing partners to Allah, that's what they believe about the Trinity, is we have multiple gods, right? Then they are just as guilty. This can be demonstrated with a question. Is the word of Allah eternal? When they say yes, ask, is the Quran the word of Allah? When they answer yes, ask, did this book exist eternally alongside God? At this point, the problem becomes clear. This would mean there are two eternals in heaven and that a created book is eternal. They also believe the word of Allah creates. And so... You want to, if they say no, that it's not eternally in heaven, they're contradicting Orthodox Islam. They may do that. Some Muslims will say no. But the majority of Muslims believe that, it's, that the eternal Quran is written in tablets in heaven, uncreated, which means there are two gods. But if we can change that mind and say, well, the word of God is actually Isa, and he is eternally one with God. There's not multiple gods. There's one God. We believe in only one. We need to establish that for them. <clears throat> but Jesus is the word of God, and him and his word are not different. They're not separate. They're one. You and your word are one thing, right? The words I'm speaking to are from me. They're a part of me. They're not a separate entity. And Jesus is the word of God, a part of God. Right? Um, here I have also, in point three, listed a few biblical terms for Jesus. Um, Jesus, the son of God. 
This is the most offensive title to Islam, of course. Um, they actually have it in the Quran here. I have a verse about it, Surah 9, Ayah 30. The Jews call Ezra a son of Allah, and the Christians call Christ the son of Allah. That is the saying from their mouth. In this they are intimate. What's the unbelievers of old used to say? Allah's curse be on them. How they are deluded away from the truth. As you use the Quran to, to bridge Muslims back to the gospel, please don't say things like, the Quran says Jesus is the son of God. It doesn't say that. It does clearly dispute that. This is true. Um, that's why you cannot use the Quran to read somebody, lead somebody to the gospel, ultimately, or lead them to faith, because the Quran is a false book. And it is from Satan. And it does deny the sonship of Jesus. Um, so we need to help them understand this title. And we talked about that in Appendix C. On how to do that. Other titles, biblical terms for Jesus. The Lamb of God. John 1.29 and Revelation 5.8. The Word of God. John 1.1. 1, 1, 1, 1.14, Revelation 19.13. The Light. John 1.9-13. through 13. The way, the truth, and the life. It's John 14, 6. We know all these things, but these are good terms we want to help, Christ, uh, we want to help uh, Muslims understand. And we're going to wrap up soon and take questions, but I do want to answer one question from that real quick. Because what Muslims are going to say about Jesus having so many titles is this. Which one is he? Is he God? Is he son of God? Is he word of God? Um, is, he, is he the son of man? Which one is Jesus? Isn't this a contradiction? They're going to bring that up. So here's a good response to that. One person can have different titles, right? I am a father. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm an uncle. I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. Uh, I, I have many different titles, but I'm one person, right? Um, another thing you can tell them is, according to the Quran, there are 99 names of Allah. Okay? Um, I actually have this under apologetics, that first section. You can look at it. Um, so there are 99 names of Allah that describe his attributes, basically. Um, two of these names are Al-Wahhab, the one who bestows, and Al-Kabid, which is the withholder. These two names seem to oppose each other, yet Allah is given both of them because he fulfills both roles, right? I mean, I could easily say 99 names. Allah must be 99 different gods. No, he's not. He's one God, right? He has 99 different roles, names that describe different roles. And so our God has different roles. Jesus has different roles in himself. And the last thing, is the Quran says Jesus fulfills different roles itself, right? We read that. He fulfills the role of Messiah, messenger, word of Allah, spirit of Allah, a mercy, a sign. It has a few verses listed there. So he fulfills many different roles. So, that is the curriculum. I want you, I really ask that you look through those apologetic sessions because as you speak to your Muslim friends, they're going to bring up some of the questions in those sections. Um, you know, a very popular one uh, about the Trinity is one plus one plus one doesn't equal one. You know, 
And so I have an answer to that in the curriculum you can talk about. Um, it's just good to have those answers. Once again, not very theologized answers, but very basic, straightforward answers that they can chew on, right? And they can think about. So that is a year's worth of curriculum condensed as far down as I can make it <laughs> that I teach my students. I am up for questions now. And I have a microphone. We want to record the questions, so please, please use the microphone and ask away. I was under the impression that somewhere in the Quran it says that specifically someone cannot bear the sins of someone else. Yes, that is under the apologetic section. Um, I have an answer to that question. Basically, the answer is that it says no bearer of burdens can bear the burden of another. This doesn't apply to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus isn't a bearer of burdens. He's perfect. He has no sin. And so this verse doesn't apply to Jesus. Good question. Any other questions? Have you guys had pins? Because you may have had questions as you were going and you wanted to write, you know, and then, so, yeah. Um, do you use uh, how Jesus describes himself as the son of man as one of his favorite terms to describe himself? Do you ever um, talk about that? Yeah, son of man. Um, so son of man is something they're going to want to argue. That's also in your apologetic section of more than a prophet a little bit. Um, so son of man, we explain what that means uh, according to the Bible. Just very, very straightforward about what that means. Um, son of man is a title, not for just a human being, but it's actually the title for the Messiah given in Daniel chapter 7, right? And so you explain that to them. Um, that's in your notes under apologetics of more than a prophet. Let's see if I can find it here. I think it is. I thought it was. Okay, I don't see it here, but um, basically, yeah, I explain that Jews of that time knew what the title Son of Man meant. It was a prophesied by the prophet Daniel that the Son of Man would be the judge, right? And they believe Jesus is the coming judge. We also do, and that's what the turn of Son of Man is denoting, and then you can read Daniel chapter 7 for them about the Son of Man. Okay. <clears throat> is it true that in the Quran, God is, or Allah is not explained as loving? Like that's one of the words that is not used. I've heard that that is true. If that, if that is true, do you feel like that's an important concept to explain or create for, for the Muslim? Yes, of course. Um, they do have a term for him being loving and merciful. Um, their problem is not that, because most Muslims I talk to will tell me, God loves me. And there's a, 
they say it's love. But that's where you dig a little deeper and you go to the fatherhood of God um, because they believe God is transcendent, which means he doesn't come down to man. He doesn't relate to man. He doesn't have an intimate relationship with man because that would belittle him. He's too high for that, which is also hilarious because in Surah 20, Ayah 10, it says he entered the bush to speak to Moses. So he actually does enter creation. But, <laughs> I'm sorry. But, um, so they, they will say to you on the surface, God loves me, or he has a form of mercy and love. But if you dig into the relationship concept, they don't have a good concept of relationship. They rehearse prayers, you know. It's often like a very traditional Catholicized kind of idea. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> they have to do things in Arabic, which is not their mother tongue. That's another argument I didn't get to go into in depth, that um, Muhammad um, actually was sent to the mother of cities, and the Quran is in Arabic. Why? Because it's not for all peoples, according to the Quran. It's for Arabs, right? So, um, so they just don't have a good concept of fatherhood, and that's where I would go with that, is to speak to them about God ha is a loving father and he has a loving relationship where you can actually speak to him and he can speak to you. He's not just so transcendent that he doesn't have a real relationship with you. Yeah. Another question. Do they get to... Uh, a Muslim that goes to heaven, um, they don't actually spend eternity with God himself, do they? <clears throat> um, they're in Jannah, which is God's paradise, but they're, you know, our, our understanding of heaven is that we get to worship God eternally. And the closer you are to God is like the major rewards, right? Like, that's the greatest reward. Their version of heaven is... Um, is called paradise, and it's basically supposed to be the Garden of Eden, except um, men receive 70 virgins, or 72, I think, and they get to drink wine, which are two things that are sin according to them now. So they basically, in heaven, they get to sin as much as they want, and God doesn't punish them for it. That's what their ideal heaven is. So, they're the sex slaves. Or they go to hell. There are some um, verses that basically, this is very interesting. There's a hadith that's, that actually has atonement in it that says that a Muslim, even with a mountain of sins, when he comes to judgment, those sins will be heaped on Jews and Christians in hell. There's another place where the prophet Muhammad says most women will be in hell. So women really have a pretty grim outlook. Uh, Yeah, most women, um, Islam is very cultural, especially in African tribes and stuff. And so they kind of ignore that. They just kind of focus on the temporal and they, they don't, most of them don't know enough about the Quran or the Hadith to really even think about that. And so they don't even really think much about the eternal perspective. Islam is very much like Old Covenant Judaism. And so they have an earthly kingdom mindset. 
very strongly. Once again, that's the carnal mind, not the spiritual mind, right? And so that's, that's how a lot of women justify and stay outside or stay in Islam. Um, people that I've heard of from the West who converted to Islam, like women, a lot of them have done that because they feel like, for different reasons, like men respect me more because I wear, I hide myself and I'm not a sex object anymore. Of course, they don't know they will be in heaven, but uh, <laughs> it's so confusing. So yeah, that's the basic answer. So you were explaining in the Quran, there's obviously a lot of respect for the scriptures, like the passage where it says, don't argue with the people of the book, you know, go to them for answers and for understanding. But then they have all these teachings, especially like in the radical Islam, where it's okay to kill the infidel. And um, there's all this obviously cultural hatred and animosity towards Jews and Christians. So how do they, how would they rectify that? How would they justify that? Or is that just a good thing to bring up as, to point out as a contradiction of the teachings of Islam? Yeah, um, it's good to bring up the contradiction because um, Muhammad in his earlier years was in Mecca where he was fairly peaceful and the people actually persecuted him because they were polytheistic peoples and he was advocating a monotheistic religion, right? So he had to flee to Medina. And when he went to Medina, he got popularity and political power, right? And so at that point, he becomes more violent, more about political success and wartime success, right? And so the surahs, the Medinan surahs are more violent. And it says, kill the infidels, lie and wait for them. It's, it tells them to do these things. Um, and so it's good to bring up the contradiction. Um, there is a, a theology in Islam called abrogation, which says the latter, um, the latter revelation can, uh, is trumps, basically, the former re revelation, right? It's greater than the former revelation. Um, but the Medinan surahs are later, and so really the violent surahs should overwhelm them. Most passive Muslims, what they will say is, well, it says some of these other things. Um, and most of them believe in certain, Muslims actually believe in certain stages. And stage one of taking a society is very peaceful. And stage two. Stage three is where you become violent. And the peaceful ones mostly believe they're just, we're not in stage three yet. We're in stage two, you know. Um, so what's that? Uh, it depends. The, the sheikhs know this. The imams know this. A lot of the people under them don't. It's kind of like Mormonism. There are things that they just don't know. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the higher-ups and the imams know these things and prepare their people for these things, but they, they teach them in stages. So they'll go, oh, they're not ready for the third stage, so we're not going there. Of course, you have the jihadists who believe they're in the third stage and are pushing it very strongly. So, but yes, you can clearly use that as a, a contradiction um, in that. So going back a little bit, I'm, you know, relatively good with math. Um, if most women are going to hell and these Muslim men get 72 virgins, where do these virgins come from? <laughs> Man, that's a good question. You should ask a Muslim that. 
You ask a Muslim that. Um, they do believe that the women who, I think part of the incentive for women is that um, a woman becomes magically a virgin again when they enter paradise. So um, the, the women who are going to be in paradise from here, they become a virgin again if they weren't here. So that basically kind of answers it, but the rest of it I have no idea. That's a good question. Yeah, the math doesn't add up. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so on the sort of dabbling again in the jihad sort of thing, isn't someone who dies trying to kill the infidels or whatever, don't, don't, they, don't they get sort of like a blank check, like any bad they've done is canceled out? And Good. So for a Muslim, according to the Quran, the only sure way to enter paradise is jihad. Right? That's the only sure way. There's a verse that basically says, he who commits jihad knows he will go. Everybody else, even if you have a million good deeds, you could, um, Allah could just decide, ah, nah, I'm in a bad mood today. You're going to hell. Right? Because he's, he's completely objective. That's part of what's very interesting, and I debated on this topic of how do we obtain forgiveness from God. They, have, they don't believe in atonement, and yet they believe that the prayers of Muhammad can forgive them, maybe, or this thing. Ultimately, it's up to Allah, who may be just, and maybe he won't be. Maybe he'll forgive them, you know? It's very just many different kind of things thrown together. So <clears throat> jihad, according to the Quran, is the only sure way. And so you're right. If someone has a lot of bad deeds attached to them, you know, they've raped somebody and stuff, then jihad's going to look very attractive, right? Because it's their only way that they know they'll go to heaven. And they're probably not going to go if they've been bad people the rest of their life. Yeah, I did hear, I think, some of the 9-11... Uh, uh, terrorists spent the evening before racking up points on the negative side of their, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, good good deed, bad deeds sheet. You know, right. it's kind of like, well, tomorrow we'll get it all fixed, so we'll just go out and party <laughs> we'll get tonight. It all fixed. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It is true. That's what the Quran says. So. Cool. Well, good. Well, any other questions? Of course, you can ask me after. I'm doing this again on Tuesday. So if you think of some more, you can come back for more um, information. But uh, let's pray, and then I guess we can go. Dear God, we love you. We thank you for this time and this opportunity. And I pray we would not take this knowledge uh, for winning an argument but we take this knowledge and we use it as we share the gospel with our friends. Lord, you say your people perish for lack of knowledge. Knowledge is something you've given us as a tool of love and as a tool of the gospel. So help us to use this as we engage Muslims, as we talk to our Muslim coworkers and friends and the people around us that are Muslim. Use it to share your love with them, to show them the lie they believe and show them the truth that can set them free. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.